is a bit of a conundrum. So King Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived, but was an absolute dummy about women. That's really the best way I can put that. So King Solomon passed away, as everyone does eventually, and his son, Rehoboam, yeah, his son Rehoboam becomes king. No, I was wrong. Jeroboam. So there's Jeroboam and there's Rehoboam in the story, and I'm going to use their names interchangeably. Unfortunately, that's just the reality here. Please be patient with me. If their names were like Steve and Joe, this would be way easier for me. Solomon's son. I'm going to have to make sure that I clear this up right now. Okay. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, not Jeroboam. I was right the first time. Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. That is the last thing said in second or in First Kings 11. So we're on to First Kings 12 today. Israel rebels against Rehoboam. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard that he was still in, or he was still in Egypt. He had fled there from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Jeroboam and said to him, "Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the low, the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us, and we will serve you." Rehoboam answered, "Go away for three days, then come back to me." So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders and gave that the um, elders advised him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, but I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. Your father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. And I don't know if you recall that, but Ahijah had already told Jeroboam that he was going to rip away ten of the kingdoms from the house of Solomon and give them to him. And that Solomon's family, David's line, would keep two tribes out of the twelve. So there's twelve tribes we're doing a two to 10 split here. But this has already been prophesied through Ahijah. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, 
What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoram, who was in charge of forced labor. And if you remember, forced labor is actually a huge part of King Solomon's kingdom. This is how all the beautiful things got built. So he sends out the guy, Adon Iram, who is in charge of forced labor. But all of Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion to the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men to make war on the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not give up, do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you. This is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. So he's off to a very rocky start, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. He has taken the council of young men over the council of elders, which is already a mistake. But I bet each and every one of you can remember doing that. Your parents tell you something and then you consult your friends because your parents don't know anything. My dad's friend told me this, but I'm going to listen to Steve because his older brother told him. I've used the name Steve twice in analogies this morning. That's pretty weird. Must have Steve on the brain. Sorry, Steve. But he does something that we still do because people are people and it's reflected in scripture over and over again. We are not generations. I mean, we are generations removed, but this style of thinking is still what drives every human being. He asked the older people that know better. He didn't like what they said. So he went to the younger people and they justified what he wanted to do anyway. So as God has already promised, he rips away 10 tribes from the house of Solomon and allows the family to keep two. Jeroboam, however, even though he's been given 10 tribes and God promised him he could have them, still is nervous about Rehoboam taking his stuff back or his people back or the cities back or what have you. So at the end of verse 12, what we, or verse, goodness, at the end of chapter 12, what we actually have is Rehoboam, or Jeroboam is so worried that Rehoboam is going to resume being king over all these other people, that he doesn't want them to go to Jerusalem to worship. So he does something incredibly stupid, and he has two golden calves made, which is kind of an Israelite tradition now because more than one person has done it. 
So he has two golden calves made, and he puts them in two different cities, one in Dan, which I believe is in southern Israel, and then he puts one in northern Israel, I believe at uh, Peniel. Anyhow, but he puts these two golden calves, and he tells the people to go there to worship the God that brought them out of Egypt, which is the same lie the Israelites were saying when they tried to worship the golden calf in the wilderness. So we have the return of the golden calf. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. He did this in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests on the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Okay. In chapter 13, the word of the Lord comes from a man of God. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judea and Bethel. As Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high place, who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be spilled apart and ashes on it will be poured out. When the king Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar to, and said, seize him. But his hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that it could not be so he could not pull it back. Also, the Lord, the altar was split apart. Its acids poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. When the king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for the, me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, come home with me and have something to eat and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half of your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I have commanded, I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he had come from Bethel. And I would actually highly encourage you, again, uh, I would highly encourage you to read through these chapters on your own because I'm having to skip through. Again, I'm trying to make it through the whole Bible in about 18 months here, which I can go slower. And I probably will in reality. But I'm making broad strokes because the Bible is very full. And every time you read it, you're going to notice something else. And we would have to take this a couple verses at a time to do it justice. So I would highly recommend be in the Word, study for yourself. I'm just doing broad strokes here. I'm skipping up to uh, chapter 14. At that time, Abijah, son of Jeroboam, became ill, 
And Jeroboam said to his wife, go disguise yourself so you won't be recognized as the wife of Jeroboam. Then go to Shiloh. Abijah the prophet is there, the one who told me I would be king over the people. Take 10 loaves of bread with you and some cakes and a jar of honey and go with him. He will tell you what will happen to the boy. So Jeroboam's wife did what he said, and he went and went to Abijah's house in Shiloh. So Abijah is very old at this point and is having difficulty seeing. But they seem to forget that people are prophets, and God is speaking to them, so he already knows she's coming. And when she comes in, he identifies her as being the king's wife and says, why are you trying to trick me? Okay, so when Ahijah, I'm sorry, I keep calling him a, okay, so when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps, so Abijah's the son, Ahijah's the prophet. So when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps in the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam, why this pretense? I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I raised you up from among the people and made you a leader over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. But you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commands and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. You have done more evil than all who lived before you. You have made for yourself other gods, idols made of metal, you have provoked me to anger and thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I'm going to bring disaster to the house of, Re of Jeroboam. I will cut off Jeroboam, every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as one who burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those belonging to Jeroboam who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. The Lord has spoken. As for you, go back home. When you set foot in your city, the boy will die. All Israel will mourn for him and bury him. He is the only one belonging to Jeroboam who will be buried, because he is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord, the God of Israel, has found anything good. This sounds incredibly harsh. And we do ourselves a disservice when we look at God's justice, which is always holy. God is holy justice. In order to be wholly just, evil has to be punished, or it's not justice. Justice actually requires punishment for evil. But what I find to be a strange mercy is even this boy who's going to die is the only one that gets to be buried because he was not evil. So he's given that dignity. And I know that sounds incredibly harsh, But there's always consequences for sin. The wages of sin is death. There is always consequences for sin. However, I do want to say, Scripture also teaches us that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. So every time something bad happens to you, you don't have to necessarily look for how you've slighted God. You will have troubles. In this world, you will have troubles. You will have health concerns. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. 
And that isn't because God isn't fair. We're just not guaranteed tomorrow. All of this is a gift. We are all blessed abundantly, whether we we are willing to recognize it or not. I can never let you, I can never decipher or figure out why there's children that get sick and die. Whereas I, who tried to throw my life away for decades, am still here. I don't have an answer for that. It's beyond my level of understanding. I do have to trust that God had a reason. Because I'm a finite being and I can only see in my little, my little sphere. Recorded history of man goes back 6,000 years. What is my life on a line of 6,000 years? I can only see what's right in front of me. That's all I got. It's what's right in front of me. It's very interesting, though, when we look at those who have lost someone they love or someone who was a mentor to them or someone of faith who passes away. How many people in their inner circle start looking to God and start focusing on what's beyond? You can see God working very actively in the loss of people, particularly when it hurts. Particularly when it hurts. I don't talk about this much because I don't like to. Um, I watched one, once watched a young man die while he was praying. He didn't know he was going to die that day. His wife obviously didn't know he was going to die that day. God knew he was going to die that day. He died calling out to God, surrounded by people who... did not exhibit the fruits of the Spirit is the kindest way to say that. I don't want to make assumptions for everyone else's spirituality that was standing there. But he died calling out to his maker because he had faith. And I remember at his memorial, someone sang Amazing Grace who also had a great deal of faith. And I remember watching every single person in that room break. I also remember a bunch of people going out to the supply the very next day to try their dog, get their dog tags changed so that they didn't say atheist anymore. Because that's an option. You can get people to put atheist on your dog tags. Whole lot of them changed to Catholic or Protestant or non-denominational Christian the next day because they realized they didn't want that. And there's nothing in my mind that's ever going to make that a pleasant memory. Nothing. But I can never call his death pointless. Because it served a great purpose. It wouldn't have been the purpose I would have picked. But I'm not God. And God doesn't run his plans past me because he knows I'll mess them up. God is sovereign. God sees the eternal. All these little pains we experience, God sees eternally what it's doing.
People are going to lie to you right to your face and say that God wants to heal you each and every time. I get to go to heaven someday. You don't keep me here. We all die from something. I get to go home someday. I don't want to wait till I'm 120. No, thank you. It's too long. It's just too long. My great grandma made 101. That sounds long, but that sounds good. 101 sounds good. We place so much value on this finite existence. I do not deserve to be here anymore. By through my own choices or just, uh, I don't believe in luck, but just the chances of where I was standing, I've almost died so many times that I don't even know if I'd be shocked anymore. We need to understand though that there's more. There's always more. We cling to this finite existence because it has value. It's a gift. It's a blessing. Life is, is a blessing. All of life is sacred. All of life is precious. But there's more. There's more that I get to go to. I don't get to bring a cent with me. It doesn't matter. I have a retirement plan, by the way, for the first time like ever as an adult. And I'm excited about that, but I don't take it with me. I don't. If I die before the horse, the horse stays here. I don't know if the horse goes or not. I, I still haven't found that in Scripture. But all this is flaming nothing. It's nothing. I love it and I enjoy it, but it's nothing. As my Subaru continues to age, because we're going to drive it till it dies, that's what Johnsons do. Going to drive it till it dies. And then whatever car I drive after that, it isn't going to make a difference. If God blesses me to the point where someone wants to give me a Mercedes Benz, because that's the only way I'm going to own one, by the way. <laughs> or whether I'm lucky enough to find a $200 Chevette that no longer exists, it won't make a difference. What I drive isn't going to make a difference. The house I live in isn't going to make a difference. People's opinion of me really isn't going to matter all that much. We have this brief period of time where we determine eternity. That's all we got going on right now. We've got this brief period of time where we can decide to fellowship with the God of creation. As Solomon's son and his archenemy there, who have almost the same name and have been tripping me up all morning. And then it gets even harder when Jeroboam's son has almost the exact same name as the prophet. So we have Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Abijah, and Ahijah. As you look at their story, you can, you can plug yourself right in. But the Bible's not about you. It teaches you, but you can plug yourself right in. You can be like, oh, yeah, people were always people. People were always people. How many of you, by show of hands, because I'm a teacher, if you're bashful, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever felt the presence of God? 
How many of you still continue to sin? Thank you. There's a couple of you I'm really impressed by right now, though. (laughs) But how are we any different? If you have felt the actual presence of God, yet you continue to sin, what kind of, I don't know if that's ignorance or arrogance, but we're all guilty of it. We aren't that different from these wicked kings that I judge so harshly. And I would be, well, I wouldn't be doing what I'm supposed to be doing if I didn't bring up, if I didn't bring up Jesus, because it's not like I have to, but I'm going to. We fully rely on Jesus because it's all we have. At the end of the day, I have read so much stuff. You have no idea. I've read so much stuff in the past few years from really intelligent people with clever letters after their names that mean that they're smart. Hypothesizing about scriptures that I feel I understood when I was 10 and just running amok with them because they've forgotten something. They've forgotten Jesus. There's also some brilliant, educated people writing great books. Please read. It'll do your mind good. But just because someone has a doctorate in Hebrew studies doesn't mean they know Jesus. It means they're clever. Good for them. Solomon was clever. The devil's clever, if we want to go that route. Some of these people can quote whole books of the Bible and don't know Jesus. Again, the devil can quote the Bible. He was there when they wrote it. So for the third time, I'm going to use the name Steve, but this is actually associated with a person. My cousin Steve, who almost everyone here knows, likes to say that the most dangerous thing in the world is a reasonable argument that's false. And how do you find out what truth is? It's all I have. It's all I have. I feel the presence of God by his mercy. There are times when I feel the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, by his mercy. This is how I know God. This is how I know my creator. In history, you have cultures where they waited years for oracles from priests so that they would know something about God. I have a book full of oracles from the creator of the universe, and most of us don't read it outside of Sunday morning. 17% of Bible-believing Christians read their Bible outside of Sunday morning. Almost as few can name more than two of the Ten Commandments. We are biblically illiterate as a society. Do you know what has to change? You read it. If you don't like to read, you download the app on this thing, and it'll read it to you. And if you don't know how to do that, I'll show you. If you can't read the words of God, listen to the words of God. 
There's no shame in listening. Not every great godly person in history has been literate. But guess what? I think almost all of you are. Which puts you at an advantage. Every home here probably has at least two Bibles in it. If not dozens. Do you read them? We're the most blessed people on earth. I have no idea why communist China, there's people that aren't allowed to have Bibles that have books of it memorized as they smuggled through bits at a time. Yet among us, is there anyone that has memorized an entire book of the Bible? Because I can't raise my hand for that. I don't get to heaven because I memorized though. So don't mishear me. That's works. But why is it that there are people living in remote jungles that are more biblically literate than the best scholars of us? It's because it's their religion. Is it ours? Is it truly your religion? You say it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I say yes, and I affirm that. How good is your relationship? Is God your pen pal? Where you wait every couple months and you get a little news? Is God your buddy? Where you check in on him a little more regularly? Do you have an intense, loving relationship with God? Do you treat God as a husband? Do you treat Christ as a husband of the church? Do you intensely desire the happiness of your spouse? In this case, I'm referring to God, but just in real life, how you treat your spouse is probably a direct reflection on how you feel about God. Have you ever thought about that? It's terrifying. I could talk about Jesus all day, and I probably will, but I do recognize that I can probably leave this message where it is right now. If you can do so without pain, will you please stand with me? Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for Jesus. And I thank you for your grace that cannot be earned. Father God, I thank you for each and every person here that I need in my life. Father, I pray that you would remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That we could love. Love as you love. Father, I pray that you would bless the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, that brings us to our time of announcements and prayer, which will be led by Chad Keeler, so you get a different voice.